awesome. Um, we're, it's, it's the second week of Missions Month. The title of today is The Gospel on the Move um, to Unreached People Groups. Our speaker today is Charlie Davis, um, who is a, uh, a missionary kid from Pakistan. His parents were missionaries there with TEAM. TEAM stands for, uh, there's no reason you would know this, the Evangelical Alliance Mission. And it partners churches with um, places where we can plant churches among unreached people and help those people reach people in their culture. Um, After uh, being a missionary kid, um, Charlie became a missionary himself. He spent more than 20 years in Venezuela. And I I said in the last service, I think it's great um, to have somebody whose missionary work was among Latinos, even though that's not what he's focusing on in his service, because when we think about the theme across the street and around the world, one of the first thoughts that should trigger in our mind is Latino, Latino peoples. Most people have heard the, uh, the statistic that there are 11 million undocumented Latinos in America. Just think of the millions more, though that's just the undocumented Latino peoples in America. Think of the millions and millions of, of people who are, are Latino citizens, and yet so much of the world is Spanish-speaking and Latino of culture. The idea that we could do something here that could have global effects is, should be astounding in our lifetime. Just as God has brought international students to us, so he's brought Latino peoples to us. And we should be thinking of that when we think about this theme, I think. Um, after serving 20 years in Venezuela, Charlie became the director of TEAM for 12 years until very recently. And um, TEAM has been, um, has been a place where we, this, this church, High Point Church, has supported missionaries with uh, two generations of the Sherbeks um, in, in uh, Pakistan and the Arabian Peninsula. So we have some personal skin in the game with this organization gladly. Um, so why don't you welcome Charlie as he comes and we'll pray for him. Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit right now, and so the reputation of Jesus could be expanded and move forward. We pray that what Charlie speaks to us, you would use to affect us, to build conviction, to raise our emotions and our affections, to love the right things, to be moved by what you've called your church to be. And we pray that um, that what you that what you do right now would matter in making us a global people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And thank you to you all. It's a, pl- it's a privilege and pleasure to be here this morning. But I want to th- start by thanking you for the way you have supported and sent uh, missionaries around the world, particularly those that I know in team. So in addition to the two generations of Sherbeks, Dennis and Diane currently serving in Pakistan, and uh, their parents who served in the UAE, um, I just found out between the services that Ted McKinney, Ted and Rachel McKinney, who are currently serving in Nepal, that Ted grew up in this church, so you've had a, sh- you've had a part in shaping him, and they're helping the Nepali church actually move into the regions towards Tibet where there are people, groups that are still without the gospel. And uh, Brooks and Marianne Glett, who have been working in the UAE, and Tim and Martha Hatch. So quite a few connections that I I didn't realize all of those in the first service, but every prayer you've prayed, every dollar you've given, every act of support and help that you've uh, given to those missionaries and all the others, God is using right now to continue to raise up the body of Christ around the world, and you've had a part in that, and it's a pretty remarkable thing. So thank you. Uh, One day we will see the results One day when we gather around the throne for the marriage supper of the Lamb, you will meet the people in the UAE and in Pakistan and in Nepal and on the borders of Tibet who come to Christ because you have given, you have prayed, you have participated, you have sent your own to to work among them. So 
thank you and God bless you for that um, I'd like to read a, a passage here but before I do I, I, I had the privilege of listening to Pastor Nick's message uh, that he preached last week uh, somebody sent me the link so I got online and, and listened to it and, and it was about the name of God embedded there in Matthew 28 where we're called to teach people to obey everything and then to baptize them in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit and and the weight and responsibility and glory of carrying the name of Christ and sending those who carry the name of Christ being those who ca carry the name of Christ and it reminded me of a time early in our marriage. Chris is here with me today, but in, she's in one of the classes right now. When um, uh, we had been on our first assignment to Venezuela and had come back to finish up uh, work at, at Trinity Seminary, and my father-in-law had helped us purchase a new car, and it was a really cool two-door Chevelle. It was only a couple years old, and uh, it had a uh, vinyl top, which was just really cool in 1973. It turned out, you know, they get all dull and pretty awful looking in a couple of years. But, um, and uh, for the first and actually only time in our lives, uh, we decided to put a bumper sticker on. And the bumper sticker said, Jesus is Lord. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. <laughs> but it was amazing what that did to my driving. Now, it's not like I was disobeying all the rules before, but, uh, but I surely wasn't going to disobey any of the rules, you know, excessive speeding, you know, kind of get through that, red, that, that yellow, almost red light, you know, all those kinds of things that you can be tempted to do. Uh, you know, it was pretty easy to realize, okay, I got to, if they're watching me, that's not going to look good. But something else also started happening, and I began to do some things that I wouldn't have done. So it's not just not doing certain things, like, you know, the, the, we're carrying the name of Christ, so therefore we should not, you know, commit the big sins of stealing and lying and cheating, committing adultery and those sort of things. Um, but also it began to shape how what I did do and how courteous I was to other drivers. Or, you know, you come to a stop sign and say, no, no, you go first. It's all right. Or... It doesn't matter. Uh, I don't have to get into that spot, you know. But carry on. It's okay. Uh, a little bit more patience, a little bit more, uh, less frustration, and so on. So knowing that people were watching <laughs> had this effect on, on driving. And it's a pretty simple illustration. But the pastor's message reminded us that when you are baptized into the name, and you now carry the name, it's as if, it's as if right across here we had bumper stickers on between our shoulder blades that say, Jesus is Lord. So that whatever we do and whatever we say throughout the day is a reflection of what Jesus would do if he were there in whatever sphere of influence he's given us, whether that's in the family or in the business or in school, uh, what, whatever sphere of influence it is that he has given us, what would Jesus What's the reflection of Jesus in that environment? What would he say? What would he do? And it's interesting how this coincides with mission, because uh, there's a professor at, at uh, Fuller Seminary who works half the year in Fuller in California and half the year in Kabul, Afghanistan, because that's where he did his missionary work. And he has been uh, carrying on a uh, research study among Muslims who have become believers in Jesus Christ around the world. 
And it's, it's remarkable how many Muslims have been coming to Christ recently. And one way of understanding the whole war on terrorism is not that they're out to get us, but that the enemy, the enemy of our souls, I'm talking about here, is furious that for the first time in centuries, he's no longer able to hold Muslims within his grasp, in his territory. That the church of Jesus Christ is breaking through, and the enemy is angry, and he is precipitating the terrorism to make us afraid so that we'll stop doing what we've been doing. It's a counterattack. Because the Church of Jesus Christ is being so successful. So Dudley Woodbury has been going around with students from Fuller to ask these believers, what was it that drew you to Christ? What were the major influences that caused you to reflect and change what you believed about Jesus Christ? And there were six characteristics that, that are listed that are, that are common to... They've, they've interviewed, at that time, they had been interviewed 650 of these people in like 50 ethnic groups in 43 different countries. But the number one, character, the one, number one influence drawing Muslims to Christ today is the character of Christians that they've watched and observed. Now, we hear about other things, miracles and healings and, and visions and disillusionment with militant Islam. Those are all in there. Visions are about the, the sixth, actually. Visions of Jesus Christ and the way he's appeared to them and then drawn them to uh, some person that can tell them the gospel. But the number one characteristic significantly beyond the other five is the way Christians live among them. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty remarkable. And that's the opportunity we have. So I'd like to invite you to uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read three verses, Colossians 1, 6 through 9. <clears throat> Paul writing to the body of Christ. Paul writing to the fellow believers in Colossae, in Asia Minor. And in verse 6, a few, ver a few verses into uh, the verse, he starts in, at least in the new, in, in the uh, new, what am I reading here? The International. Uh, he says, all over the world... This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you all since the day you heard it and understood God's truth and grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So for this reason, what, what he's heard about them, he has not stopped praying for them that they will be filled, the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So... Um, it's, it's easy for somebody who's preaching or speaking to not leave time at the end for the application. Here's the way you can apply this in your life. <laughs> so I'm going to start there. Um, that's the application. That, that prayer, that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Pray that for yourself. The, and pray that in your small group. What is the knowledge of God's will for your small group? What is the knowledge of God's will for your whole church body? 
May you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because there's nothing more explosive in in its potential for changing the world than a simple act of obedience to God's will. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When he says in this first, in verse 6, the first verse we read, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now in the New Living Translation it says, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is changing lives everywhere just as it changed yours. Now, Colossians was written when Paul was an older man, so give it, let's say it's around the year 60. Jesus died somewhere in the early 30s. So it's been 30 years, and he says this has gone out all over the entire world? It's like, whoa, that's pretty remarkable, 30 years? So what, what's he talking about? Is this just kind of an evangelical exaggeration? Well, no, actually. Here's what, here's what happened, and there's an article written by a man named Andrew Walls called The Serial Nature of the Expansion of Christianity. And there's a longer title, but, um, I mean, it goes longer than that, but that's the part I can remember. And he says what's happened to the Church of Jesus Christ since the time it was founded and since those early believers gathered in the upper room and the Spirit of God came upon them is that in those first, the, the, the church has been growing in successive ways of expansion and recession, expansion and recession, expansion and recession, but each wave of expansion has been greater than the one that preceded it. So think of it this way, Jerusalem. So there's this explosion of the gospel in Jerusalem in the day of Pentecost and afterwards and, you know, 5,000, 3,000, 7,000 come to Christ and it's like this. And then there's a, there's a recession as they come under persecution and as they face really, really, you know, difficult days. And, but the church has just exploded out of Jerusalem and then it's gone into North Africa with the Ethiopian eunuch. It has gone up to Antioch uh, with Barnabas and some of the others. It, is, it has gone, gone into that part of the world. And it comes under persecution, and then it bursts out again. This time it bursts out from Antioch. And so Paul and Silas and Luke and John Mark and Barnabas and the others that they sent out as a church to send out, to sending out missionaries, they begin to take this word out into the known Roman world, and Paul and Barnabas in particular go to Asia Minor, cross over into Europe, eventually get to Rome. Meanwhile, Thomas is on his way to India. There's a church in southern India today called the Mar Thomas Church, and they date their roots back to the ministry of the Apostle Thomas. In some of the historical data, it seems as if at least two of the original apostles made it as far as China. We do know that it made it through the Roman Empire, and by the time a couple hundred years had gone by, it is all the way up to Great Britain. And by the year 400, a guy named Patrick hears the gospel, hears the good news of Jesus Christ, just before he gets kidnapped and taken over to Ireland. And if you want to read that story, there's a book out there called How the Irish Saved Civilization. It's a really cool read. Um, Patrick then becomes a believer while he's tending sheep, half naked and freezing, on the hills of Ireland. He becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, and then under his ministry, something like 90% of the population of Ireland at that time turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. 
Say, whoa. So when Paul says this gospel is changing lives everywhere, just as it has changed yours, he was not exaggerating. That had that which had begun under under him and that he was observing just continued to roll into roll. Now, when Rome collapsed in the year 500, and now it's been shaped by Constantine's version of Christianity, and it's collapsed, and, and the church, the center moves from Rome to Constantinople, which is today Istanbul. Um, you know who evangelized Europe? It wasn't Rome. It was the Irish. The Irish sent wave after wave after wave of missionary over to those heathen Europeans <laughs> who needed the gospel. They got burned, they got tortured, they got martyred, and yet they just continued to send wave after wave of missionaries over across to Europe, and they laid the roots of what later became modern Christian Europe. Now, it's not Christian anymore. It's post-Christian. And that went on for centuries, and then from Europe, the good news got carried to the New World, and that's where we finally get in the picture 250 years ago. And then the New World gets just catches fire and the first and second and third great awakenings in North America in particular and then God uses that crazy bunch of people over there across the world in the new world namely us to send missionaries to where to the whole southern hemisphere to Latin America to Africa to India to China to the Philippines to Japan to Indonesia and that's been going on for the last 250 years. And in the last 30 years, one of the most remarkable things in the history of the growth of the church around the world is that all of those countries now are exploding with a missionary sending potential. Unbelievable. The U.S. and Canada have, if you count all the career missionaries out there, the U.S. and Canada is about 45,000 from all the churches across the continent. The one country of Nigeria in Africa is aiming at sending 50,000 missionaries by the year 2015. Like, whoa, unbelievable. Korea, I think, has 28,000 missionaries today. They're just, the, the, the privilege and pleasure of sending their own out into the world of the still unreached. Is just, is just driving this forward. So the next great wave of expansion is coming from Latin America, from Africa, from India, from the Philippines. It's just the Philippines. 87,000 churches, the last I heard, in the Philippines. And 10% of the Filipino population is spread across the Middle East just because they've gone there for jobs. So that... I think that means 8 million Filipinos are spread across the Middle East. 10% of them are believers. That means there are 800,000 Filipinos spread across the Middle East at work. And the vision of the Filipino church is to train them to be missionaries in their marketplace. And they say, we're, we're going we're to train at least 5%, so that's going to be 200,000 Filipino missionaries that they're going to have working around the world, in, in, uh, right across what we call the 1040 window. Whoa, this gospel that changed your life, this good news that transformed you, is going out over the whole world. And if it was true in the day of Paul, oh my goodness, look what we get to be a part of. This is what you join when you're baptized into the body of Christ, this amazing movement that's been going on for 2,000 years. And now you get to put your, your soul and heart into it. 
Now, the interesting thing here is that Paul goes on to say, you heard this, first of all, from Epaphras. Well, well, who is he? I mean, how often do you hear about Epaphras in the Bible? It's not a big name. This isn't Billy Graham. Not the Apostle Paul either. This is just a common and ordinary person who runs across Paul in Ephesus, learns from Paul what it means to follow and be obedient to Jesus Christ, gets his life transformed by Jesus Christ, and says, wow, i got to go tell my family and my friends in Colossae. And he founds the church in Colossae. He doesn't have a very big budget. He doesn't have a building. He doesn't have a sound system or a worship team. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, okay? (laughs) But that's not how the church grows. Those are wonderful blessings. But that's not how the church of Jesus Christ is exploding across the planet today. Or then. It's when one believer in Jesus Christ says, this following Jesus Christ is the greatest thing you've ever seen, man. You've got to join the family. You've got to come in and join this. You, you, not only will your life be transformed, we'll transform this country. That's, that's the power of Epaphras to found the church in Colossae. He uses ordinary people to do his work. God has done this since the beginning. He took the most ordinary people you can possibly imagine from from among the Jewish people. I mean, how more ordinary do you get than fishermen and tax collectors? So sometimes we think, well, I'm not trained enough or I'm not big enough or, you know, I... Well, forget that. That's not how God does his work. He likes using ordinary people. There's this amazing story that you can read up as much as you want if you look up the name Buck Singh on the internet. I, I went and Googled Buck Singh just yesterday just to check, and then I saw there's something like 270,000 hits on that name. It's spelled B-A-K-H-T, Buck Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Buck Singh was a young man in the, in 19, the 1920s. He studied in Europe and England, and then he went to Winnipeg, Canada, for a graduate degree, if I've got it right. Uh, He was studying in Winnipeg, Canada, uh, Canada, and he'd already studied in England, so I'm assuming it was a graduate degree. And when it came up for the first Christmas break, he he wasn't going to go home. It's too far. He couldn't get there anyway (laughs) in those days, uh, you know, by train and boat. So he, uh, schools closed, so he goes down to find lodgings at the local YMCA. And there's a Christian businessman by the name of John Hayward who apparently had made a similar resolution like Rick that he's going to get in good shape. And uh, he's gone down to the gym at the YMCA over Christmas break, and he runs into Buck Singh. And they strike up a conversation, and he finds out that he's a foreign student. He's across the street, if you will. And... It's close to Christmas, and here's the thought that flits through his mind. Why don't you invite him over? Now, let's imagine that you're in, the, you're in the gym, and you've met a foreign student, and it's just about Christmas, and that thought goes through your mind. You know, what are you going to think? It's like, uh, um, do we have enough food? We don't have any presents. You know, what, what, 
You, you can think of all the reasons why you might think that was a... But we don't know him. We don't know anything about Indian culture. Maybe he won't like our food. You can think of a thousand things that would hold you back, right? But he just went ahead and invited him over. Well, one thing led to another, and they eventually invited him to come and live there while he was finishing up school. So Buck Singh came to live with the Haywards. And as he lived with them, and they prayed, and they shared scripture with him, and they took him to Bible studies, and they lived their life before him, he was drawn to Jesus in them. And there came the day when he put his faith in Jesus and was baptized. And he writes back to his family in India, and he says, I have become a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, in India, it's fine. You can do anything as long as it's not exclusive. And so his parents wrote back and said, okay, that's fine. You can be a follower of Jesus Christ, but just don't tell anybody. And he wrote these famous words, which have rung down the centuries now, the, the years, the decades. Can I live without breathing? Can I be a follower of Jesus Christ and not tell other people about him? He's transformed my life. Why wouldn't I want him to transform someone else's? So when he went back to India after he graduated, he began up, his family kicked him out. They disowned him completely. So he's on the street, basically, in India. And he decides, if that's where I am, I'm, that's where I'm going to preach. So he started preaching on the street. And he just traveled up and down India, preaching out in the open air. And he didn't go to the traditional English-style churches that had been built the, in the, during the English uh, colonial era. He went out into the marketplace. And he looked at the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, they had three convocations a year, you know, when everybody was supposed to go to Jerusalem. So he would call these convocations once every, you know, three times a year, and people would come from all over India to hear speaking and preaching for a week, and then they'd go back, and he would continue his preaching ministry. When Buck Singh died on September 22nd of 2000, on the day of his funeral... 250,000 people went to Hyderabad to see if they could catch one last glimpse of him. According to some of the reports, about three-quarters of a million people went there that week to just pay their respects to Buck Singh. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like an ordinary guy. I, I think you're right. Buck Singh was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> but what about John Hayward? What would have happened to this story if John Hayward had said, nah, I don't think so? Oh, oh. <laughs> but think of it this way. What happens when John Hayward is around the throne at the marriage supper of the Lamb? And he gets to meet the 250,000 people that have come to Christ because of the ministry of Buxing. Can you imagine a simple act of obedience? Invite this guy over. That's the, that's the explosive potential of obedience of Epaphras, that he goes home and, and starts the church in Colossae that, that we hear about here. And the reason why it's so explosive is because when we obey, however simple that seems, however mundane that may appear, when we obey, we are connecting with the eternal plan of God. John Hayward didn't know what was going to happen in the next 70 years. 
He just knew that he should obey. God knew what was going to happen in the next 70 years because God is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the one that has the broad perspective on what's going on, and he's the one that says, if you'll just do this piece, look what I can do. And he invites us in. So that when we do see that harvest, we've had a part. That's the, that's the unimaginable privilege and responsibility of carrying the name of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Why wouldn't we want to do this? This is, this is the biggest story of all history. It's going on right now. You don't hear about it in the press. You know, you hear about the war here and the problems there and, and the difficulties in Egypt and Tunisia and so on. You don't hear about the small, simple acts of obedience which are changing the world and changing people's lives as it draws other people to Jesus Christ. I'd like, to, I'd like to close with a story that was written a few years ago. Excuse me. Um, we have a short-term program. You've got a short-term group going to Guatemala. Uh, we have people coming through team every, every year for up to a year, so two months to a year long assignments around the world. Um, you can find those on team.org if you want to look them up. But uh, several years ago, a young woman came through one of our classes, uh, and she was on her way to Caracas to work with some missionaries in Caracas. And eventually she would fly from Chicago to Atlanta and then on to Caracas from Atlanta. And after her summer experience, she came back to finish up college, and she wrote this story for one of her classes and sent it to me, and I asked her later if I could use it and share it with others. Her name is Lauren, and um, this is her experience of obedience. Uh, the title of this is, is More Than a Dream. Um, she says, I had been waiting for this day for what, like, what seemed like all my life. The jet was filled with people buckling their seatbelts, stowing away luggage, reading, or eyeballing me as I searched for my seat. An empty chair remained between two pleasant-looking men, each squirming to assist me as I climbed in between them. Right when I sat down, the Holy Spirit pressed this thought into my mind. Lauren, why are you going to Caracas? You say and know the Christians are to be missionaries every day, no matter where they are, so... Don't wait to get to Caracas to show the love of God with someone. Look around. Then, like clockwork, those fearful thoughts crept in. Now, just pause. When that thought flicks through your mind, look around, show the love of Christ. If the next response from your heart is fear, you're probably on the right track. Because the enemy knows that God's up to something, and he wants to stop it. And the first tool he's going to use is fear <laughs> every time. So you're, you're probably on the right track. So those fearful thoughts crept in and all the excuses flew up. But God was at work and more powerful than my deepest fear. Thomas, to my right, gave a warm greeting and settled down with his book and comfortable pillow. We exchanged small talk and then I turned to my left to meet Omar, who seemed anxious for the plane to take off. We all were. Thomas, a 56-year-old businessman who lived in Atlanta, was on his way home from a business trip and decided to sleep most of the flight. I was on my way to Caracas, Venezuela, to spend the summer sharing Jesus with people of a different language, country, and culture. But it was Omar's eagerness that captivated the moment. He was a 19-year-old guy from Yemen, heading back home to bring eight 70-pound bags full of supplies from the United States to his family. That dates the story a little because now you can only carry 50. But... He began to describe his American dream experience with enchantment. 
Well, let's see, he said. I came to America with my aunt and uncle when I was only 14. I hadn't learned any English, English yet, but my father sent me anyway, hoping I could open a business and make money for our family. I studied in the American schools, graduated from high school, and now own and manage two grocery stores, two liquor stores, and two gas stations in New York. I hope my dad will be proud, he said casually, as if every American-born child was expected to have this laundry list of accomplishments. But the thrill of those accomplishments couldn't compare to the excitement Omar was exuding as he waited for the plane to take off. He had not seen his family since he had come to America five years previously. Omar and I continued to talk. He was most excited to see his four-year-old little sister, who hadn't even been born yet when he left Yemen in 1999. He told me how his father worked in Saudi Arabia, and his mother takes care of the children in Yemen, the other six children in Yemen. I asked Omar to tell me about the differences in the Yemen culture and the culture here. That's a great question, by the way, if you meet a foreign student. He quickly said, everything is different. Everything, especially religion. Yeah, religion is very different, he said. That's when it became evident to me that the Holy Spirit was at work. Omar had brought up the topic of religion, and the opportunity to share was right there. We talked for a while about what he believed, and he was curious to hear about my faith. I was able to share with him the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He was very interested in reading through some scripture verses together. I could tell during the first few verses that his study of the Quran was, was comprehensive. And the verse John 14, 6 sounded very familiar to him. He said that the Quran teaches that Allah was the way, the truth, and the life, not Jesus. We kept plugging away at different scripture verses. It was when he grasped the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead that his interest peaked. He was confused but amazed. He was shocked that Jesus could live again after he was killed, and he told me that Allah could not do that. He sat quietly for a long time, mulling through the new revelation of understanding. Then he turned to ask me, where does this Jesus live? I pointed to my heart and said, he lives in the hearts of those who believe and follow him. I presented Omar with the opportunity to give his life to Christ and be a follower of his. What happened next was not the, no thanks, I don't really need Jesus right now, um, or the more hopeful, yes, I want to give my life to Christ today. It was a response pierced with honesty, a moment that required deliberation. Omar paused for a long time. He was deep in thought, and we just looked at each other for a while in silence. Then he said, I've never heard of this Jesus before. But I will think about this and we'll learn more about what you say. I will look for the Christians who will tell me more about this Jesus. You see, this is the first time I've ever heard of Jesus. There is no Jesus in Yemen. Thomas, who had woken up while Omar and I were talking, leaned over to me and whispered in my ear, I was praying for you and Omar. And I will continue praying. Keep being bold and sharing. People need Jesus. Thomas and I talked for a while, and then I introduced Omar to his second Christian. Thomas told Omar that Jesus is in Yemen and asked him to look for him there, and Omar said he would. The bizarre part to this story was how Omar ended our conversation. 
During my training at Wheaton, the director of team, Dr. Charlie Davis, shared with us that many Muslims are having dreams and visions of Jesus. I told one of the several stories that's out there. Dreams with a man surrounded by a radiantly bright light. These dreams come before they meet a Christian, then the gospel is spread. Dr. Davis shared a specific story from one of the missionaries he knew, and this exact situation occurred. The dream, then the Christian, the gospel shared, and then the entire family comes to know God. Before Omar and I exited the plane, he touched my arm and said with an intriguing voice, I need to tell you something. I had a dream last night that I would meet a 20-year-old girl on the plane. When I shared my dream with my friend in Chicago this morning over breakfast, he made fun of me and said, no, I'm going to sit next to an old man. But I told him, no, she's a beautiful girl, 20 years old, and it's important for me to meet her. Now look, you're sitting right beside me. How old are you, Lauren? I looked into his curious eyes, smiled, and said, 20. God is at work around us. The importance of our obedience to God's great commission is critical in the lives of those who do not yet know him. Omar had lived in America for five years and had never heard the name of Jesus. mission across the street. It is God's job to save Omar, but it is my job to be obedient to the Holy Spirit when he stirs within me the command to share. And what joy comes after sharing. Here's the fascinating thing. When that thought flicked through Laura's mind, say something to the people around you. Well, you know, it's either Omar or Thomas. She didn't know that he'd had the dream the night before. She didn't know what God was up to. She doesn't know today what God may still be doing through this story. We've heard that there's quite a movement of people coming to Christ in Yemen. Does that have anything to do with Lauren's story? I don't know. Maybe. It certainly could. But she didn't know what God was up to in his big story, but she did know that God had said, do this. And she did it. And what joy. When, we, when our simple acts of obedience combined with God's eternal perspective, it's explosive. This good news that's transformed your life is transforming lives everywhere. And that's what God calls us to do. So, the application. Pray that you will know, as Paul says, because this is what's going on, then may you be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding in the knowledge of his will, what he wants you to do. And then let's do it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we worship you today. We've sung songs of worship. We've sung psalms lifting up your name. We have worshiped and praised you this morning. You are the God of all history. You are the God of all ages. You are the beginning and the end and the Alpha and the Omega. We worship you today, and we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, whether that's individually or as small groups or as an entire body of Christ here at High Point. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with that understanding of your will, and we ask it in the glorious and grand name of Jesus. Amen.